Hey, y'all. It's Anna V. And you, my friend, are listening to the All-American Wing Shooting Podcast. I am a hunter, conservationist, mom of two girls I have raised in the outdoors, and a proud owner of a truck full of dogs. My passion is guiding you to confidence, sharing in tradition, and celebrating the true meaning of success in the field. Here we go. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of All American Wing Shooting Podcast. We have probably one of my most favorite people from Minnesota on today. We have Brett Amundsen with Sporting Journal Radio and everybody in the South, you need to find them on Instagram and follow them. They really set the bar for sharing news about the outdoor industry. And I really don't remember meeting you guys. I just feel like I've always known you. I met you at Pheasant Fest. Uh, in Minneapolis, I think that with Bob St. Like Pierre, it does <laughs> for sure. But, uh, but yeah, we've, you've been on my show, obviously we've talked, talked a little bit, so i uh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Well, I have been on your show and it was so fun because the whole gang's on there and there's so much banner. You guys are a blast. We try to have fun with it. We have pretty Dan's in the background. So we'll say shout out to him. <clears throat> oh, you got a shout out, Dan. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's back there. David was with us. He just left. We just got done rec- recording our show. And um, I know this is geared more towards hunting, but we cover a little bit of everything, hunting and fishing and conservation. And we had Aaron Weeb from Uncut Angling, who's a, a huge YouTuber, has done a lot in the fishing world. And he recently put out a video about marrow trauma. And uh, and then it was in response to a video from the Linder Media Group here in Minnesota, and they have a show called Angling Buzz, and they filmed the Minnesota DNR doing a study about barrel trauma, and there was some disagreements about study methods and things like that. So we had Angling Buzz on last week, and then Aaron. Uh, so Aaron came on today and said, we need to call this barrel drama <laughs> and not barrel trauma. So uh, it's been an interesting couple of weeks here with the show. Yeah, well, you guys have tackled a lot of things, too, that's overlapped, including um, the wolf population and and stuff Mm -hmm. going on in Wisconsin, because I have a buddy over there that's working on that um, in the political realm. So I've been keeping up with what you guys are doing. But when it comes to the fishing, I typically just ignore it because I have no (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I love talking (laughs) hunting. Big fishing world where I live. I mean, there's a massive bass lake here, and they host a lot of tournaments. But I just never got into it. Well, it's it's different down there. They think you know, living in the land of ten thousand lakes here in Minnesota, and even the Dakotas and Wisconsin, and then we got Ontario right on top of us, and Saskatchewan and Manitoba. Fishing is just such a big part of the outdoor world here. I mean, most people that hunt also fish up here and most people that fish also hunt you get a few that only do one or the other but um it's a seasonal thing so a lot of people like to fish early ice and then sometime in december this year is a little bit of an anomaly it's been pretty warm but normally people are fishing early ice and the fishing's really good and they're like oh you got to come out here and fish i'm like man my my hunting season isn't over yet I, i can hunt pheasants until january 1st then talk to me i'm like i haven't even taken out my ice fishing gear yet Right. Like we just wrapped up our, our deer. I was archery hunting for deer right up until the end, uh, December 31st and then pheasanting until the first. And then now I'll start to now I, this week I catch up on stuff that I avoided during the hunting season because I was busy and then, <laughs> then I'll get into ice fishing. So, well, I don't want to jump ahead, but that sounds like you just cheated tiny big time on, on hunting and giving her field time. You know, she got plenty of time in the field this year. <laughs> she hunted quite a bit. I, 
I probably didn't pheasant hunt as much as I normally do. I did take her grouse hunting for the first time this year and I uh, brought Mika along too. And, but, uh, a lot, I did a lot more filming of pheasant hunts this year, but most of the time I brought tiny with. So I even filmed an episode of Prairie Sportsman where I had tiny with on, on some of the, some of the hunts. So even though I wasn't carrying a gun, I had her still running around in front of me putting up birds. So she got plenty of field time. <laughs> I love her. Okay. I've, I have to tell you something cause I'm just so excited. I got a surprise this week and I didn't expect my mug. Oh, look at that. You guys really knocked it out of the park with this. Thank you very much. Yeah. So I got a pheasant mug that says I hunt and always will fish hunt forever. That's right. And that pheasant right there, if you went to pheasant fest in Minneapolis last year and saw mm -hmm. one of the 45 billboards that were up around the Midwest, that's the pheasant that was on the billboard. So I call that the billboard rooster. I took that picture last fall. I had, uh, it was during the hunting season, but I was just walking with a camera and I had the dogs out and, uh, both dogs, <clears throat> we were walking along some cattails and we came to this corner of the cattails and both dogs went in head first. And before I could even react to it, this rooster came flying at my head and I almost threw the camera up as a defense mechanism. <laughs> And I just like snapped. It was like the Matrix. Like I was taking pictures in the I was matrixing underneath this pheasant like that and taking pictures of it as it flew out in front of me. And as I'm looking through the viewfinder, I noticed um, that some of them were in focus. And uh, because I was just hitting around, I think I get 20, 20 frames per second or something like that with this camera. And uh, so I was just like rapid fire on this rooster. And all of a sudden, like I could, it was like slow motion. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's in focus. And uh, so there was a couple of really good shots that came out of it. And that was one that PF picked for their billboard. So pretty proud of that shot and put it on mugs, put it on t-shirts. It's on no, not this one, but I got a hoodie that hoodies and t-shirts that it's on too. So going to get a lot of mileage out of it. Oh, and what a great story. It's not just, not just a bird. It's yeah. A bird. Completely wild bird. Um, and just a complete hunt. It just didn't have a gun with it. a complete hunting situation during the hunting season. Both my dogs put it up and, uh, just happened to get snag a couple of good pictures of it. Well, I have not <laughs> been pheasant hunting like that in a couple of years now. So next year I'm coming. All right. I'm going to come up there. And there's some dog trainers that are like, I've never been on wild pheasants. I'm like, you got to go. Like, I'm just going to put a big trip together and we're going to caravan to Minnesota. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's no, there's no pheasants here. You'll have to go to South Dakota or you. North Dakota. There's no, on our there's, way. there's no pheasants in Minnesota. In Minnesota. <laughs> Now we've got we've got some birds here and they, we've got some good pockets. Minnesota is pretty underrated for pheasant hunting, actually. And the beauty of this state is there's a lot of opportunity. Like the Pheasants Forever and the Minnesota DNR have done a lot to provide some public hunting uh, access in a lot of places. Some people think we need more. Some people think we have too many, depending on which side of the argument you want you're on. Regardless, uh, as somebody like me who's traveled to a lot of other states for different hunting and fishing opportunities, Minnesota. Minnesotans take advantage of what we have sometimes and don't realize that it's not as good in other places. Uh, obviously, the Dakotas are great for pheasant hunting, and they've got a lot of land access. Kansas, Nebraska's got some good access. Uh, Minnesota's done a good job of providing, trying to build corridors of habitat to provide uh, the, the wildlife habitat for pheasants or deer 
duck nesting, but then also open up some access for public hunting opportunities. And you're not going to go out there and you may not see the bird numbers that you would say in South Dakota. Um, and you're not going to maybe shoot as many, but you'll get a chance to pull the trigger and uh, you get lots of dog work. And ultimately that's what it's all about. Having some uh, encounters with wild birds and getting some exercise and putting some meat in the freezer. Do you guys go down to Iowa? Uh, you know, I haven't been down there for a long time. Um, every year we talk about taking a trip south and I would like to, uh, one of these years, I'm going to, I'm going to probably try to get over to South Dakota before their season ends at the end of January. Um, I know a few guys that have been down there that, uh, have had some success. Um, I, I bet it's been, it's been a long time since I've hunted in Iowa. Um, but I don't take a lot of trips for, uh, for pheasant and as many as I'd like to anyway. Yeah, it's it's hard to get up there. It just seems like now it's so far away from my normal route when it used to be my normal route. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a lot of work. I mean, I love hunting trips and I I spend a lot of time on the road as it is, but nowadays when we travel, we're loading up our our hunting or fishing gear depending on the trip. We're loading up our dogs and all our dog gear. We're loading up all our camera gear. We're loading up our computer gear so we can transfer all the footage from the cameras to the computer. So it, it gets to be a lot of work to do these uh, these trips these days. But I know. And then I had to trade in for the enclosed trailer and all the decoys and the waders and just keeping your life organized. It was a lot easier when I was rolling around with just like 10 dogs. <laughs> <laughs> no, that doesn't oh, sound right. That was actually easier. <laughs> I never thought I'd say that. Yeah. Doesn't seem right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I didn't miss it, but... Um, it seems like I got down to three dogs and they're stacking back up a little quicker than I thought with our future plans. So we'll see. Oh, really? So my trailer, I was like, I have not used this in a while. So maybe I'll just sell it because somebody else needs to go make all those memories, you know? And then I'm like, no way. The, the day I sell it, the next day I'll need it. Yeah. So I was like, okay, well, if it's going to sit here, I'm just going to put it to use. So, I mean, Tater Might and I as well get some more dogs then. Yeah. Or borrow some. <laughs> Just go borrow some. You know, I'm I'm terrible. I know if you go on Marketplace, you'll see hunting and fishing equipment, you know. And I know some of my buddies even, it's like, well, I'm going to buy this flasher for this year and use it for three months and they sell it again. Or, I, or I'll buy a new truck and then, uh, you know, eight months later, they're selling it and buying a different truck or a wheeler or whatever the case may be. I'm the worst at that. I buy it and I just put it in a shed. Me too. A, I get closet. so mostly attached to things. I don't <laughs> yeah. want it to go away. I'm going to need a bigger shed or a bigger house soon just because I'm a hoarder when it comes to all that equipment. It's terrible. Oh, well, it's fun to stuck all that stuff up. I mean, we've gotten to where we keep all of our um, convention badges and little oh, yeah. tickets to all the stuff. And we're putting scrapbooks together with all of our pictures. And I'm trying to get back to old school where I'm printing things and not living in digital worlds. Hmm. I can't do that. <laughs> That's like I've got all the old badges and they just hang they're just hanging in my closet on a hook just kind of out of the way. Like No, I display those things. And and I yeah, I keep like the little welcome flyers. It's bad. <laughs> yeah, it's I'm not much true. I mean, I'm doing it with the girls usually, so it's like That makes sense. I'm going to grow up one day and <laughs> like remember when mom did this? She was actually really fun. <laughs> See, Facebook is my scrapbook. You know, sometimes I put pictures up on Facebook and it's it's just for me. Like I'll create a hunting 2023 folder and I'll put a picture up there. And I know some people are like, oh, social media, you're giving away all the spots. You're ruining it by putting all these you know things out. And I, 
I try not to put out like pile pictures or things like that necessarily, but a lot of times it's for me because I know if I made a scrapbook or something like that, I would lose it in about six months or it would. Under this season, post all the pile pictures you want because we forgot what that's even like. Yeah. (laughs) We still, we were still covered in mallards here uh, up until about a week ago. I yeah. don't want to hear it. I'm oh not happy. We just canceled. We just canceled two trips no, um, to Nebraska and Wyoming. Gone. I'm not no. happy about it either. We couldn't hunt them. We just we just watched. Them. I went and took pictures, and oh. uh, that was. I mean, that was all we could do. I've I've done everything in my power to try to convince the hunters in Minnesota that we need some later dates for hunting for waterfowl hunting, and the amount of pushback I get is surprising. Because a lot of guys want to hunt earlier when it's warmer, when it's easier. They want to shoot some teal, whatever. That's great. Um, I personally would rather lay in a field under a swarm of mallards than swap mosquitoes and and waist deep swamp, you know, slough water. Yeah. As much as I enjoy that too, and I love eating teal, so I'm I'm not going to really argue about opportunity, and I don't want to take away opportunity from anybody else. But in the central flyway. They can go whatever it is, 74 days. They got some late season river zones. But here in the Mississippi flyaway where I'm at, so much of the council is influenced by you guys down south that say, <laughs> quit shooting our quit shooting our mallard ducks up there, y'all. That we don't even get a chance at them. The mallards, we I think I shot two mallards this year, you know, and I hunt quite a bit. And they were both brown, you know, brown. They might have been drakes. They were both, I don't even remember, but they were brown ducks and, you know, no fat on them. So they weren't uh, they weren't the nice late season colored up birds, which uh, I would prefer to own. So no, we it's went been a tough year. We went to the very end of the first split in Arkansas and took Tater to the flooded timber, and it was a blast. But we were swarmed with wood ducks. I mean, oh. everywhere. So it was really cool for her to have that experience because they're just zooming all through there. But um, I don't know. I'd be scared to to pick a number of how many mallards we actually shot. But I would say. It wasn't even 20. Yeah, it was tough. What are they in Missouri right now? Do they even, I mean, are they even into Arkansas? I think I saw, I think I saw. Rusty, Rusty posted some, but not a whole lot. And then I had a buddy that was down there last weekend. He didn't even pull the trigger. He just went back to Tennessee. I saw a post from, I think it's like the Cohen bird laboratory or some, they do uh, some duck banding research. And they posted the other day that one of their, tracked mallards had made it down to Arkansas. So I think maybe they're finally starting to show up down there, but it is, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about where the birds are at and where the migration is at. And I saw somebody else share one of those posts as a podcast about where are the, where are the birds at? What's going on? It's like, uh, it's open water in Minnesota. <laughs> okay. That's where the birds are. It's as simple as the weather hasn't, hasn't pushed them down. So that Ramsey Russell's post, I think I saw it. It might've been, um, I can't remember. Where in the heck are the where in the heck are the ducks or something like that? <laughs> like, the heck? That's all anybody's talking about. It's like, yeah. how is this happening? Okay, so I got to go back to you posting on your memories on Facebook because you know that I lost Facebook. Um, let's see here. Last year in August, they took it away from me, and then December, last December, a year ago. This would have been two years ago not this past August, maybe the August before, six months before I lost my Instagram, I lost my Facebook. So Facebook went away first and I was like, okay, well, I literally wasn't super active on there, but I did the same thing. And it wasn't necessarily the pictures and the videos that I had posted on Instagram. It was the captions. It was the words. It was the emotions that I put in there because everything I do is pretty much real time. 
And I have so much regret not having that because that was the story of my growth. You know, now that I've had these conversations about it, people don't realize that like I grew a platform as I was learning that I didn't grow up a wing shooter or bird hunting. I, I've not even been doing this. This was my seventh season. And we were like, what? It's like, yeah, that's reality. And so everything that I was learning, I documented through social media thinking we were always going to have it, right? That was like our backup plan. We It was safe there. It wasn't like it was going to crash on our computer, whatever. Right. Um, and then somebody just decided they wanted to hate me and took me out. And I feel like I not only lost a big part of my own personal journey, but even of my kids. It was devastating. So you didn't even get to keep any of the photos or you just didn't get to keep? Like, uh, well, I mean, I just post. have like the photos and stuff on my phone. I mean, I'm sure that I have them on the cloud. But the but the post part is where is where I felt like the heartbreak because the words and, and that really showed the emotion of the events and the people that I was with and or where I was. And when you look back at some pictures in the field and you're like, I think I was here or there, or what, you know, I mean, I was like traveling hard to remember 40,000 miles a year during hunting season. It was really hard. Yeah. It's, it's going to be really hard for me to look back. So when they remember where I was. So when they took that away from you, it, this, they just shut you out like you didn't I got hacked. And then I got um, ransom notes and hate mail on WhatsApp. My account's still on my account, like my face. That Instagram account shows up when I open up my big account where I have like multiple accounts. But the crazy thing was, is that I've been shadow banned so bad. I don't know if I'll ever be able to build a platform back on there. But I couldn't, I could not start a new account for a very long time. I don't know if I still can, but I, you get that one chance to change your name. Mm -hmm. So I went to my kennel one and changed it so I could start over because they Instagram wasn't even going to let me start a new account. And I'm like, oh, my God, I made every call. I called in every favor of anybody I ever knew. <laughs> and I was just SOL. Wow. Yeah, that, I mean, that is a big worry. And I don't know how many times we've talked about jumping over to, you know, like Rumble or I thought Parlor was going to be a thing. Um, you know, we worry about YouTube. You know, we're we're essentially running four YouTube channels and all but one have some sort of hunting type content. And when we talk about shooting or guns or, or something like that, whether it be tips or, you know, just going out and hunting. So we, we, we and, and, you know, we're monetized on a couple of them and we're extremely worried about all of a sudden YouTube just saying, nah, nah, we don't well, like hunting I anymore. Bubble, but I just started a YouTube this morning. Yeah. And with my assistant, because we were, what happened, we were in this great conversation. I was like, oh my God, it's not recorded. People need to hear this. So we were talking about marketing and how I hadn't found the right marketing team to implement the things that I want, which I wanted to duplicate a system of a female in um, the business world. She's just a small biz coach. I mean, she's like massively huge, but... She turned her photography business into a small biz coaching platform. And she's all about courses and encouragement and all those things. And, it, and her messaging really aligned with what I was doing and what I wanted to share through the journey. Yeah, like I did become, you know, a champion shooter, but that's not what I'm most proud of. You know, like that was just the result of me finding myself and staying committed to something. So, um, 
in doing that, I couldn't find a marketing group within the outdoors that could give me what I was asking for. A, a certain look on my website. I wanted layers of information and content. And I wanted I wanted women to come to my page and get lost on information of how they could build their own outdoor traditions and stuff with their own family. Like based on how I did it, like there's no right or wrong way, but I didn't have a female mentor. I still don't have a female mentor in the wing shooting world. So it was like, man, I wonder how much better it would have been if I hadn't had to learn everything the hard way. <laughs> so sometimes that's better. It, yeah. But I found a, a girl, a lady in Canada who's not a hunter and I've never had more support in my life. And man, it's just amazing how timing is really everything. And mm -hmm. she gives me exactly what I want sometimes before I even tell her. Um, so it was a perfect match, but we were talking about just the marketing aspects of things and how there's so many startups, right? There's so many people that are doing camera work and all this stuff, and they're only on the surface. Like when you go to them and you say, okay, I need to build a system, people look at you with, with like deer in headlights. Like, what are you talking about? I'm like, this is so normal in the business world. Why are we 20 light years behind in the outdoor world? It should overlap. Well, I think a lot of that is just because people in the outdoor world just want to go hunt and fish. You know, I mean, that's, it's the same reason to me why a lot of people that hunt and fish don't want to get involved in, say, politics or something like that, because they just want to go hunt and fish. Oh, and my gosh. This is my favorite conversation. And I really <laughs> feel like you guys up north want to play that. We just want to be a hunter. We just want to be a hunter card. And us down here are like, no, we got to trailblaze and we got to be loud and we got to put her foot down. And you're like, no, I'm sorry. I'm lost in the woods. Well, we all just want to be, we all just want to be lost in the woods, but I have. When we come out, we want to still have our rights. Well, that's the problem. And that's why we've really, I mean, that's where I fish and I hunt and fish hunt forever. That's where that comes from because we really want to make statements and fight for our rights as, as hunters and anglers with, with this, these platforms that we have and not just make, you know, hunting and fishing content and outdoor content. We want to spread messages of sustainability, of conservation, uh, with a heavy emphasis on protecting our rights as hunters and anglers. And um, one thing that we talked about on our show this week, as a matter of fact, with this barrel trauma discussion with Aaron Weeb, is we want to make sure that we can self-police the outdoor community and make sure that we're doing things ethically and taking personal responsibility into account so that we don't have our government coming in and pulling things away from us or putting mandates and restrictions. Our government does it to a, 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 us enough already in the name of whatever. We don't want that to happen any more than it has in the outdoor world. So it's important for people to stand up and, and you know, have advocacy groups, whether it's, you know, uh, SCI or Minfish up here for us or Pheasants Forever or whoever it is, all these big advocacy, advocacy and conservation groups now have people at the Capitol, you know, some sort of uh, government relations. We need relations. to talk about that because this is my pet peeve or soapbox. And I actually wrote this down to ask you what yours was. But you got to mine first and, and I can't back away from it. And, you know, I can't. I think from my perspective and observation, which I know I haven't been here very long, but I have spent the majority of those seven seasons, 365 days a year, diving into this one topic. <clears throat> Sometimes it makes me um, not as popular as I wish I was, but I'm not here to be popular anyways. I was here to be legendary and make sure that women all knew that they could do it on their own. Right. I love that, by the way. I'm not here to be popular. No. I'm here to be legendary. Yes. 
Because, it. and it's not that I never needed a man or I feel like I'm equal because I'm furthest from that. If it hadn't have been for these most precious, strange guys that are involved in organizations that mentored me along the way, I never would have made it this far, right? Because I wasn't married to a hunter, nor my dad took me bird hunting. So that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that there's organizations and until people dive down into the organizations they're committed to, they need to understand what that mission is for each organization. Because the reason why I am so involved and sold out, obsessed with SEI is because they are the number one organization fighting for hunters' rights, not hiding behind habitat. And right now that is like a massive topic. And I just don't feel like that story is being told. I feel like everybody thinks, oh, you know, we're hunting and people, you know, we're all about this species or that species or whatever. But it doesn't mean that there's a focus or even um, a priority of hunters' rights versus habitat and conservation. And so it takes all of them. And I just wish that the hunter was educated in that because it's so important that we spread the love. Yeah. And I I think overall, some organizations might have emphasis on other things, whether it be habitat or species uh, specific uh, interests, but um, some organizations probably do the the government relations thing better than the others. And maybe they feel like, well, they can, they can fight for that for us and we'll fight for this for us. And um, I think they all should be fighting for hunter's rights. Of course. I think we, we all want to see that. I think that's a number one topic that, that needs to be uh, prioritized, but obviously um, there's some organizations out there doing some really good things for habitat and things like that too. So, but well, it's more, small, but you can't assume that everybody's doing everything. Sure. And I think most hunters do. They just don't, they don't know what they don't know. They don't realize that that's the case. I think that right there encompasses a big issue with our world is a lot of people don't know and just don't care. They just want to go do their thing. They want to go work their 40 hour a week job, punch in and punch out and, and forget about the world and go sit in a boat somewhere or go sit in a tree stand or walk in the prairie, whatever the case may it may be and, and escape the world for a little bit. So it's important for the, for the rest of us uh, to want to maintain that type of lifestyle, um, there are people that go out, have to hold other people accountable to, to fight for those rights. I totally agree. And then the other thing about the hunters that kind of gets me too, is that their priorities, when it comes time to vote and to, to stand up for certain rights, the hunting right part of it may not be at the top of the list. So maybe their top priority leads them in a different direction than the person that's actually coming or standing up for us as hunters, right? And so my whole mentality is like, what makes America, America is our second amendment. America. America. So, you know, and, and I just, I get on this and this is what got me kicked off social media. I guess kicked me off my own podcast. I don't know, but I'm going to start posting everything on my website. So our go. emails and our email marketing may be so annoying, but sometimes for people like me, that's all we have. Because the world shut us up. And um, I, I just know how important it was for me when I had the discovery moments. And I was like, man, I feel so fortunate that I figured it out. Yeah. That I had people, you know, share it with me. So just want to, I want to be where the people are that are making a difference. And, and my priority of making a difference is protecting hunters' rights, like first and foremost. Which is important. And I think what you talked about with voting, when people go to the ballot box, 
you know, hunting may not be first and foremost, especially like you're talking about presidential elections. You got two choices and it's like, well, I'm voting for this guy or this guy. And uh, well, I think this guy's a better option, but he's not a big, he's not big on hunting or whatever that, you know, so it becomes a prioritizing best things for the country, of course. And what's really concerning me is when you're talking about state level elections and you talk about governor appointments for state game agencies and you look at like the state of Washington where they've uh, the governor appointed somebody there that's not really into hunting. And you look at some of these other states where the government governor has appointed somebody, they can really put some dan- dangerous is not the right word for it, but they can put some people into those positions that can have a big impact on our hunters' rights. And that doesn't, that's not something you can change at the ballot box unless you're in Colorado and can vote on the release of five wolves in the state for the first time, where the barely 51 to 49% they're going to put these wolves into an area where 10% of the population lives. So now 10% of the state's 5.8 million people are going to have to deal with these wolves that 90% of the, the state, you know, or 51% of the rest of the state essentially said, yeah, we want wolves in this state and you got to deal with them. <laughs> you know, how does that work? And now you look at like the state of Washington, all of a sudden they want to rewild the state a little bit. So they're reintroducing grizzly bears. Well, yeah, let's put more grizzly bears with where people are, you know, that's not going to end well. Let's put more protections on my, I love, I think all those animals are great. Wolves are cool. Mountain lions are awesome. Grizzly bears are, they're cool, but, but let's just slow down just a little bit and understand the ramifications of putting these, these animals out there. And you you want to talk about wolves and deer in Minnesota, we could go on for hours about it because it's a huge controversial topic here right now. And obviously where wolves have grown, and for at a time, Minnesota is the only state in the country that had them, and and uh, they've been protected. And the population has grown, and consequently, our our deer population has grown, has uh, decreased. And there's a lot of outside factors, including winter severity, deep snow, cold weather. We have black bears that they also um, eat a lot of fawns. So there's a lot of other factors. But when you when you increase a predator population and then have a number of back to back back severe weather winters. That's going to that's going to put an even bigger toll, a greater toll than the that w- that'll throw the predator prey balance out of mm-hmm. whack to the point where you could wipe out the prey in a localized area. And I think that's what you've seen here in Minnesota and with all the protections, these federal protections that are literally only there because the Humane Society of the United States decided to go from federal judge to federal judge to federal judge until they found a judge that would listen, which was Beryl Howell. And that judge decided you're right. You're right. Wolves haven't returned to their historic areas in Minnesota, which would be, you know, areas where there's now a metro population. So there's more than likely never going to be wolves there again. But the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, I'm sorry, I'm going on a rant here, but the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has set a recovery goal for the wolves in Minnesota. I think it's like 1,400. It's like 12 to 1,400 wolves. And they estimate now that we have 2,700 in Minnesota. So we're way above recovery goals. There's there's, the wolves are expanding their territory. They are having an impact on deer. Some will argue how big that impact is. Uh, there are new packs forming. There's a lot of research being done on these wolves. And the state of Minnesota would love to have control. They have a wolf management plan. They would love to have control of them here, but their hands are tied. So it's, it's literally the feds telling a state how to manage their animal population, which shouldn't happen anywhere. I mean, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is fine, but I think even the U.S. Fish and Wildlife guys in Minnesota have their hands tied 
and would probably prefer to see the state have management of some of these animals because they're they got sharpshooters out there killing just as many wolves that the hunters would have been and there's money being paid to to control the problem wolves I, I, if I remember right, there was a, a report that came out a couple of years ago that said it was like $350,000 a year we were paying on problem wolves. And back when wolf, Minnesota had a wolf season, 2012 to 2015, we were allowed to hunt a certain amount of wolves or trap a certain amount of wolves. And the amount of hunters that applied for that tag, they didn't all get one, but the amount of hunters that paid the money would have covered the amount of money that's being spent to take out problem wolves. So you and could solve, happy. you make and, money and everybody's happy. Yeah. And we're not, no one's trying to wipe the wolves out. You know, I mean, I, so there are some people that are just completely anti-wolf, but I think the majority of the population is reasonable enough to think there's, there's a balance where they can coexist. And I mean, when you talk predators, whether it be grizzly bears, timber wolves, <laughs> rattlesnakes, whatever, anything that can hurt a human, I'm sorry, but the human is going to win that battle in the long run. And you're de you're delusional to think that we're just going to let this world become populated with predators that can eat us. It's oh just not God. it's just not going to happen. Nobody wants to see them disappear. Right. But let's keep let's keep the populations manageable. My bird dog buddy in Minnesota got tracked down by a pack of wolves. They surrounded him, and he took out like three or four of them. I mean, just to save his life, you know. And it was a mess for him. Yeah. And he's like, what oh, was I, I supposed to do? Like, just die? You know? <laughs> and it's like, you know, I mean, how do you just, uh, how do you even think about having to justify saving yourself? Because the people that are fighting for these wolf rights that got wolves back on the endangered species list value a wolf's life more than they value a human life. Yes. They will say that in their posts 100% of the time. Wolves are special creatures and humans are the cause for all the problems on this planet. I mean, they say that they say the quiet part out loud. Like they are literally telling you what they want. They want more wolves and grizzly bears and they want humans on this planet. And if people don't see a problem with that, then they're just as delusional. Yeah, you're being nice. Oh, gosh. Now you got me all fired up about well, wolves. Not the direction. I God really want to talk about your whole career and like how you got started. And, and I know that you've hunted with your dad this year. Did not yeah. start out early. Yeah. And yeah. so that was really what I want to talk about. But you're just, you know, <laughs> in the superstar. Uh. Man, well, these have been a couple of big topics that we've really hit pretty hard this year that I've felt are, are important topics. I mean, I'll, I'll happily talk about traditions and bird hunting. And I mean, that's where my heart really lies. I mean, I love to deer hunt. I love to fish, but waterfowl hunting and now uh, pheasant hunting really are, are my favorite things to do. And a lot of that stems from the fact that I get to bring my dogs with and, you know, they, they don't come on every waterfowl hunt, but um, a lot of times they do. They've saved my bacon a lot of times on, on wounded birds or birds dropped in and thick cattails. And, um, sometimes I, I push them a little hard, but you know, that's, that's, uh, they love that stuff. And tiny is so funny. You would laugh. You'd laugh your backside off. She gets so fired up when we go, like she's, she sees me grab my gun and throw my orange vest on. And, you know, when we get out of the truck or, or whatever, she is jumping in circles and she'll start like yipping and just like, she's so vocal. It's hilarious. <laughs> And then it's like, once we start, then it's like, boom, you know, it's, it's work mode. So she, uh, yeah, she absolutely loves to do it. And that's one of my favorite things to watch. And I don't know, um, 
quick little plug for our fish on forever YouTube channel. I don't know if you've had a chance. Oh yeah. I think maybe you messaged me about it. Um, I started filming her when, before I picked her up at Corey Loeffler's and, um, I did watch, I watched your first episode. Oh that, my God. I cried. I meant to miss you. I'm like, Corey's going to make me cry again. Just talking about it. Oh yeah. And, and honestly, that's the reaction I got from most people. And I, I, I don't ever set out to make videos that make people cry, but I want to show particularly with this raising tiny series, I, some people look, especially on the outside, they look at hunters as just like bloodthirsty killers and guys that, you know, just use dogs as tools and they sleep in kennels in the winter outside. And they, you know, they're not, you know, they're just out there just pillaging the landscape and eating and killing everything and leaving them killing for sport and leaving them to lay on the landscape. I don't know where I'm going, but you know, and, and I wanted to show, like the emotional side of it, that these animals become part of our families and um, to different levels for different people, of course. But uh, my dogs, uh, I don't let them on the furniture anymore. I've got a futon for them, but they don't get on the main couch, but they do sleep on my bed. Um, I don't, I used to ride around with Meek in my front seat everywhere. My Silverado had Meek in my front seat everywhere I go. Um, I got a new Tundra now and I make them either lay on the back seat or once I get a topper, they'll probably be in the back of the truck. And uh, people give me a hard time for that because I was always so adamant. Ah, dogs can be everywhere. You don't like dog hair? Get out of my truck. And that was that was me. Littles is gone. She's now gone. <laughs> She's getting all of her duck training, and we're gonna run HRC. And I can't tell you how hard this is. So the reason why I'm a I want to tell the listeners why I'm obsessed with his tiny dog is because she's literally the twin of my littles. And it's so funny that there's like a Yankee and Southern version of the same dog. <laughs> right? So I just Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, she's great. Like me, Mika, she'll be 13. She got the last retrieve of the season the other day. It was uh, really cool to see. She's limping now. She doesn't, you know, I bring her with and she'll she'll walk right next to me. It's kind of nice. Because when she was young, she was full of energy and, and tiny's the same way. And they're just like, oh, gotta be vinegar. piss and vinegar. Yeah. <laughs> she was just constantly up in front of me and, you know, running around like labs like to do. And now Mika, she'll, she'll hunt next to me or right behind me, which, you know, will drive a lot of hunters crazy if their dog's not out working in front of them. But it keeps her close and then she'll still catch a whiff of a bird. And then all of a sudden you'll just... Like I'll look and all of a sudden she'll just like slowly creep off the, you know, where I'm going and she'll go nose deep into some cattails or some cover. And I'm like, Ooh, if Mika is going in there, yeah, there's a bird in there. Yeah. Get your dog. You, you tell the people that judge the, the dog with all the wisdom. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. She's like, I'm not wasting my energy. Yeah. She's got, yeah. Work, work smarter, <laughs> not harder, yeah. you know, and tiny, you know, tiny's three and a half. And, uh, but I will say this, like Mika was good. Um, I didn't, you know, she got some good training. I, you know, you learn the more dogs you have, you become better as a, as an owner and a trainer as you go tiny. I'm really excited about like, she's, she's smarter and, um, more willing to learn. And then maybe uh, other than her spazoid freakouts that she has when we get going, she's, she can be a little bit more controlled and, um, and she and she's a smaller size. She's about fifty mm -hmm. pounds. She her name is Tiny because she was the runt and she looks small. But she surprisingly, I was surprised when I weighed her at fifty pounds at the vet because Mika was sixty five her whole life, 
And she had a sister that was the runt, my brother's dog. And that dog topped out at like 39 pounds, like 38, 39, 40 pounds. And I always kind of pictured, you know, tiny being about that size, but she's actually a little bit bigger. So she's a great size. She's super fast. She's got great genetics and uh, she's really smart. So she's going to be a, she's going to be a fun one. I love that because it it's just like Littles and I got Littles in Wisconsin. So, and she was born in August. Was, was Tiny born in August? End of July. End of July. Okay. So they're literally almost the exact same age. Well, of course she was the pheasant queen and my little upland hunting tournament dog. And so she just quarters naturally and she has that big motor the same way. And so when she went to training, I said, okay, I'm on the road and I don't want to have birds to take care of anymore. And I don't have any help and I'm just going to send her down. So I partnered with Mossy Pond, which actually worked out in my favor. I love it down there. They offer so much and it's a, it's a great opportunity for me to have and host women in the outdoors to have access to their place. So she's going to get a much thorough, solid foundation too down there with the guys that do it every single day. Well, um, and she'll end up on Carter's trailer eventually. And he won the SRS this year and had three dogs in the top 10. So I ain't going to complain about where she's at at all, you know. Um, but those boys in the South don't know anything about lab genetics that quarter like that, the Upland dog. And it's it's hilarious for me because I didn't even value a lab until I found that dog. And so... It took her when I took her down there. It was so funny because when she first started running really long marks, she'd she'd run real straight about halfway there, and then she'd start quartering. You know, it's like she just couldn't get out, and and they just aren't used to seeing that. And it was really it was exciting to be the one to introduce that to people that are at the top of their game in the lab world. You know, and they they just weren't exposed to it. They don't mm-hmm. see that that kind of dog down there. It's fine. Well, I love labs and obviously I'm partially to the yellows and uh, I love my dogs, but every time I start pheasant hunting, as much as I like hunting behind my dogs, I'm like, gosh, it'd be nice to have a pointer. <laughs> I'll send you one. Yeah. <laughs> I've thought about it. Sleep on the couch though. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, and then, I, and you know, I, I waterfowl hunt too much and um, you know, I do want to get a third dog now. Mika's Mika is was pretty slow this year. So we'll see how she does for next year, but I would like to have two dogs for next year, but I, I waterfall on so much that it'd be nice to rotate two dogs that are capable of doing both. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to go away from labs and obviously labs are what I know, but there's definitely been a few moments that I've wished for a pointer. And I will say there was four instances where tiny pointed this year. Now I'm sure it was more a case of she knew there was a bird in some thick cover and just didn't know where it was. So she's just stopped because she knew it was there, but it was kind of, it was kind of fun to watch. And you it was want uh, a pointing lab. I mean, you wanting that I, I wouldn't mind like her. She's got some pointing genetics that go, that go back a little mm-hmm. bit. It's nothing crazy. And I've never really tried to train her for pointing or anything, but for, uh, for pheasant hunting, I mean, tiny, and Mika for that matter, who's got a lot of years under her belt, will still put a bird up, you know, if you get a runner, they'll chase that runner, you know, and especially if I can't see him go, you know, if it's a little taller cover, they'll push that bird up, you know, 80 yards in front of you. And when I'm hunting by myself, it's like, okay, whatever. But when I've got some other people that are there hunting, it's obviously frustrating when a bird flushes wild or a a flusher pushes a bird out of range. And that's just, that's their instinct. You know, that's what they do. So but the the dog stays in range, then that's the thing. So, uh, you know, if I see him run, I try to pull the dog off the bird at least and bring him back. Um, 
but their instinct, you know, so much of that natural instinct is to chase. And so um, that's where a pointer would be nice or, or, you know, I, and I could work <laughs> on training this dog a little bit more for yeah. that. So <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Yeah. I mean, it's there. I just, she's young, but I don't know. I, Hmm. Okay. So when I got up to Wisconsin, I was doing all the training there. They had some really great pointing labs. Like one of the uh, studs there was a well-known pointing lab in the Fox Red Circle. I didn't take to it because I was such a snob about the short hair that when I fell in love with the lab, I was like, it has its job and the pointer has its job and that's the way it is. And that is the way that it is down South. You know, I mean, you have your pointer and down here, they're going to let the cocker go in and get the retrieve. But all my dogs retrieved a hand. I'm like, you're just insulting that pointer by not letting it have its reward. Right. But the chase is actually how they train the dog for the reward. Because once it does its job of pointing and the flusher comes, it gets to chase again. And I get that, but I know that those pointers can also retrieve because all mine have, and that was part of their job, you know? And so, well, that's good. I don't know. That it's, doesn't always happen. I know how everybody gets so opinionated. We're like stuck in our ways about the dog's job and breeds. I love it. Well, it was funny. I, I had some guys out last week um, and I was, I had my dogs with, but I was just filming. And um, uh, one guy was a guy that hunts over pointers and we were hunting along a slough cattails and a rooster got up and I'm like, rooster, I yelled at and he, he pulled up on it and it was flying out over the water. He's like, ah, water bird. I'm like, yeah, I got two water dogs. <laughs> Shoot His it. Pointers won't swim. <laughs> you know, I've, That's I've seen that. Socialization problem. I'm telling you yeah. what. Like, I've seen that in a lot of pointers. Too, but yeah. I've got a pointer that has out swam labs. At, oh, in really? Here. Yeah. Well, like beat a lab to a bumper in the pond. Well, that's because you're down south where it's hot. Like you take some of these, you take some of these short hairs up here and you put them in 30 degree, 30 well, degree temps. Different. Yeah. But you got your labs. Like, I know. I don't know. I wouldn't, I don't know. I just haven't been put in that situation. Cause I never really put my pointers on the ground. I always chose a lab. I always ran <laughs> even in the grouse woods. So I wanted to hear about Tiny's trip to the grouse woods because I didn't know that was so controversial up there. Right. Like I didn't, I didn't know. I just ran the dog that I wanted to run. I don't think it's controversial. It, it all depends on who you, it depends on if you're hunting with other people. Um, and grouse hunters, if you're talking about running labs or flushers on grouse hunters, I've never really heard of much of an issue there other than I could say grouse hunters are a fickle bunch. And I've always joked, like I love grouse. I, I hunted grouse growing up way before I ever hunted pheasants. And I always joke that a grouse hunter, a roughed grouse hunter would almost rather not pull the trigger on a grouse. Like they're, they count, they count successes and flushes, which is great. And I think yeah. that's awesome. But it's so funny. Like, it, they're like, Oh, my dog broke point on that. I'm not shooting. It's like, well, I mean, that's great. If you want to train, if you're training your dog, that's, that's great. You know, you want to, you want to teach dog success in the right situations, but at the end of the day, I mean, dang hard. Is that just an excuse that you don't want to talk about how many times you miss? Because it's, <laughs> it's just so hard. Well, that's the problem with grouse hunting. I mean, I, I joke now that I don't like to hunt grouse anymore because when I hunt pheasants, I can see them fly. Like yeah. you have to, this, so, so this you. year, this year, our was one of the best years maybe ever for rough grouse in Northern Minnesota. On all accounts, from anecdotal accounts, I heard from a number of people. Like the 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 hatch was great, 
The weather was great. The hunting was good. So we were just jacked. We went up to film an episode of Prairie Sportsman, a TV show I do up here. And we're going to do a story on the hunter walking trails up around Lake of the Woods, like uh, the DNR and some of the local rough grouse society chapters actually go out and have, have cut trails through the, 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 thick, big woods that we have up in Northern Minnesota to, to help you introduce people to grouse hunting also Ooh, creates, they better also, love hunting. <laughs> well, and it also creates, uh, creates habitat, uh, grouse love trails. So it can, it can create opportunity. And if you want to bring kids, it's a lot easier walking. The hardcore guys will still push the bush pretty hard and get into the thick stuff. And later in the year, that's generally where you have to go because the trails have yeah. been hit pretty hard, but it'll, it allows you to familiarize yourself with grouse habitat, get you into the right region for grouse. And if you want to bring somebody new out or somebody young or somebody old, it gives them an easy, easy walking opportunity. So we were just jacked because we were going to go up and we had, when did we go? I think it was around Halloween. Cause we went up and filmed a layout boat duck hunt on Lake of the woods of the Northwest angle. Oh, I saw that. Holy moly. That looked rough. It was, <laughs> it was unreal. Like I've been on some wicked waterfowl hunts before. This was one of the craziest and it was 15 degrees air temperature. Lake of the woods was still open, but the water was warmer than the air temp. So it was fog, just yeah. thick fog everywhere. It so, just looked so cold. It looked colder than you could imagine. It was cold. Um, we had Sitka sent us a bunch of new stuff to wear while we were up there. So it was great. And, uh, you know, we dressed for it and, um, you know, and the action, the action is so fast. And when the hunting is good, you forget about the cold a lot of times. And those layout boats are surprisingly stable. And, um, you know, the guys we went up there with the guides that do it, uh, had the system down pretty well. And yeah, I mean, we got a little cold Corey, Corey, all of a sudden I look over and I don't know if you've ever been in a layout boat, but no. it's like being in a layout blind in a cornfield or some sort of dry field, but it moves. Only, only it's on water and it's a little <laughs> wider and maybe even a little lower depending on what kind of ground blind you're using. But, and then you get waves and we had 10, 15 mile an hour winds. So we had a, we had a few waves going. Yeah. So like when you shoot, you know, you're like, and you're, and a lot of times we're hunting buffalo heads. So you got just about the smallest duck in North America flying at what looks like Mach 10 and they're doing this and then they're doing this and you're doing this. So it's like, you're, yeah, you're making the sign of the cross trying to shoot at these buffalo heads and it's wild. And then at one point I look over and Corey Loeffler is doing pushups. He's, he's up on the, up on the, the edges of his layout boat up on the, the shell, the, the, the frame and he's doing pushups. And I'm like, what? He just didn't want to miss arm day today or you know what the deal is and he said that uh, if your hands get cold the fastest way you can warm them up was, is with push-ups which is kind of brilliant but i didn't expect him to do it in, in a layout boat yeah like who wants to risk that yeah so uh but it's it's wild one of the guides showed us too uh he didn't do the demonstration for us, but he told us about it. He, he showed some people that were a little bit nervous about it. He got in one. I think he even took the plug out of it. There's so much flotation in them. He got into one and just started doing jumping jacks in it. And they're surprisingly very, very stable. So it was a blast. I shot a sea duck up there, um, which was on, we like, we went to Alaska and hunted ducks on Kodiak Island last December just unreal, amazing, amazing, like the Mecca in my opinion. I've, I've hunted ducks in Argentina and I've hunted them on Kodiak Island and Argentina was amazing, but Kodiak is 
absolutely unreal. I mean, it, it, apples and oranges comparison, but Kodiak is beautiful. And we shot, you know, Barrow's Golden Eyes and we shot Harlequins and we shot um, Surf Scoters and um, Black Scoters. We didn't shoot any White Wings. And then I go to, I, we leave Kodiak Island and then the next fall hunt in Minnesota and I shoot a White Wing Scoter. So like, what are the odds of that? And I, I, I come to find out that a, a few white wings get shot, I think once or twice a year in Minnesota. So there must be some sort of migration that goes to the Great Lakes, I suppose, over to Lake Michigan or something like that, kind of more of a, a west to east migration for those birds. But anyway, it was wild. Like we came, we came back into the harbor to park the boat and we were breaking ice to get to the dock when we came in from layout boat duck hunting. So it was cold and coming back from the Northwest angle, we were driving through essentially a, a, a snowstorm. I'm not going to say it was a full on like heavy blizzard or anything. Cause it wasn't too bad, but the roads were slick. I slid right through one of the intersections um, in Sprague, Manitoba and crossed back into Minnesota. And then we were going to hunt right by the Southern part of Lake of the woods, right by war road in the Beltrami Island state forest on these hunter walking trails for grouse. Well, they got six inches of snow and, that took all the birds and pushed them into the thick stuff and pushed them into the tops of these pine trees where they were uh, warm and sheltered. They weren't on the ground. So we walked in two days, I think we walked 15, 16 miles <laughs> and we stayed on the trails. And then I went into some of the thick stuff. We all, Dan followed me with a camera into some of the thickest cover that they have up there. Tiny and Mika followed me into that and Tiny was fine, but Mika was pushing her way through some of that thick stuff, which I was really proud of. In two days, and in 15, 16 mile, 15 or 16 miles, whatever it was, I saw, we saw collectively, I happened to see both of them. We saw two rough grouse. Now, maybe, I think we flushed maybe 10 or 12, but I took two Hail Mary shots at two rough grouse. So, I mean, we were driving up there. We had the recipes picked out on how we were going to cook all these grouse that we were going to shoot. It's going to be, they're going to be falling out of the sky, just landing right in the back of our vest. And uh, we did not shoot a single one. So it was, uh, it was neat country. The dogs liked it. Um, you know, unfortunately, I didn't really get tiny any grouse experience uh, other than running through the woods. But it was a good time. Good exercise. Did Dan end up getting a dog after he was pouting about you getting another dog? I thought oh, he was no. a puppy. No, he, he, you might have seen him with uh, his dad's dog. Oh. Uh, so my brother's got a yellow lab Aggie. And, um, you know, sometimes Dan calls him his dogs. He kind of grew up with it a little bit too. So, but, uh, his, that's his dad's. I could have sworn after he gave us so much heck about one <laughs> other puppy and especially Yugen, one that he had to take care of. Mm -hmm. I saw him with the picture. Well, well, this was fun. Even though we didn't stick to the questions, I really wanted to showcase all of the things that you've done from the beginning, but there's so much going on presently that I guess that's what's most important, huh? It is most important. It just means we'll have to do this again or whatever. Yeah, if you got other questions, that. let me know. Okay. I do want to end with this and you can take as long as you want. Okay. You have had longevity in the media world. Like you've been a hunter your whole life, raised in this wonderful world of Minnesota where everybody embraces the outdoors. It's not necessarily like down here. Well, not everybody, but most of us. Yes. Um, how do you think um, having a career in the outdoors has changed your perspective and opinion, even commitment to hunting? How, say that one more time. How do you think having a career in the outdoors with the longevity mm. of having a career, how has that changed your perspective, opinion, and commitment to hunting? I remember, you know, I was just in radio 
for a long time before I got into the outdoor side of the media industry. So I, I was in media, but it was just, I was playing, playing songs on the radio and making stupid jokes. <laughs> I, uh, I remember getting tired of it. And in fact, when I, cause I, I spent a lot of time in North Dakota. I spent a lot of time in Wisconsin. And um, when I first moved to North Dakota, I was working so much on the radio and didn't really know much about where to go or, or whatever in North Dakota. I didn't hunt for a couple of years and it was painful. And uh, I finally worked with a guy who was like hardcore waterfowl hunter. And uh, he finally started, he's, oh, anytime you want to go, let's go. And I remember the first time I laid in the layout line in North Dakota and I, I grew up not hunting dry fields. I mean, we'd hunt dry fields a little bit, but it wasn't layout blinds, wasn't big spreads. Uh, it was mostly sloughs, but um, I remember laying, and this was Wisconsin, Minnesota, so we don't have a whole lot of field layout opportunities um, like like the Dakotas. And I remember laying in that layout, there's three of us hunting, and there were so many ducks and geese flying around us that I just sat back. I think my mouth was just like, you know, on the on the ground the entire time. It was, it was just in awe of it. It was so cool. And then I... I remember the first time I saw the snow goose migration, I just drove west and I lived in Fargo. So it was basically Minnesota. So I had to drive a little bit further west into the Dakotas. And the, and my buddies were telling me about this spring snow goose migration and how, how beautiful it is. And I was like, all right, I got to check this out. So I wasn't even hunting. I just drove out one day. I remember parking on a corner and, and in North Dakota, the joke is you can watch your dog run away for three days. It's <laughs> how flat it is. So I just sat on a corner and from, as far as I could see to the west to as far as I could see to the east looking north, it was just lines of snow geese flying over and it just like blew me away. And I finally said to him, I said, I need to do something different and I need to do something in the outdoors. I want to keep doing what I'm doing because it's what I know. I'm okay at it. Not very good at it, but it's close enough. And he said, it's going to, it's going to ruin it for you. He said, once you, once you take the outdoors or hunting and make it your job, oh, my battery died. Can you throw another battery in that? Can you throw another battery in that camera, please? Um, I could probably switch. Let's do this. Maybe. No, it's not going to let me switch. Um, he, he said, anytime you're going to take hunting and make it your job, you're, it's going to ruin it for you. You're going to get sick of it. And um, it's going to become, there we go. It's going to become an issue for you. So I was, I took his advice and I made sure that whatever I did was not going to diminish my passion and my love for the outdoors and, and love for hunting. So I want to make sure that what I did for a job was on my own terms. So I basically created my own company and yeah, I, I don't own the TV show Prairie Sportsman. I, I work for that show, but everything else I do is my own company. So if I don't want to go do it, I don't go do it. So I try to make sure that we're doing things that we're passionate about that we like to do so that it doesn't become a job. I mean, it's it's obviously a job and there's some work involved, but we're doing everything we can to make sure that the, the fun part of the outdoors is still there. Is that what so you were looking for? You love it more now that it's your career. Oh, man, <laughs> I tell you what. I like, I enjoyed it before. I absolutely love it because I'm getting paid to do it. I think I'm not getting rich, but I'm getting paid to do it. And uh, I get to do it on my terms and get to do it every day. So um, it hasn't really become a job. There's work involved, but I wouldn't say it's become a job. So uh, 100%. I gotten to, I've gotten to do so many cool things in cool places because of this job. Um, so I have no regrets and uh, I probably do love it more. I can totally agree. And I, I kind of fell into this without planning. Like you had a plan. I, I didn't even know you could have a job like this. 
it just kind of happened. But I think the thing that I cherish the most about it is the people. Yeah. The best people. There are they're, most of them for the <laughs> most part. Yeah. I mean, it, it's great. I joke too that everyone in the outdoors is your best friend at the bar, but not when you show up at the same hunting spot, you know, <laughs> but, but ultimately we all enjoy the same things and um, you know, we're like-minded. I mean, that's as a human, as human nature to be attracted to people with like-minded interests and, and want to be around those type of people. Um, and for the most part, people that like the outdoors are good people. And they, despite what some anti-hunters think, we care about the land, we care about um, animals and wildlife and, uh, and the environment and all that stuff and want to see it preserved forever. But we also want to go out there and hunt these games and provide um, nutritional food and know where our food comes from and um, live off the land if we want to and have that ability to do so. So I know we live in the poultry like broiler capital of the world. That's where we live. Okay. We don't eat chicken. <laughs> we have, I have a freezer full of goose venison mm. and we have our own beef and we, I don't even think about it until somebody brings it up like that. You know, it's like we go to the grocery store and we stay in one little section because we don't, I don't know. We just get our produce and we're out of there. Yeah. You know? And so it does change your perspective. And then I think I've done it for so long that you just forget how normal society lives. <laughs> That's the truth. Yeah. That is a hundred percent the truth. Yeah. And, and unfortunately that, that part of society is bigger than our part of society, uh, which may, which is scary at times because they have more power at the ballot box sometimes. So, um, but I, I do think that, in a in a weird sense, COVID helped that it allowed more people to look at the outdoors as a way not only to recreate but also provide. And they mm -hmm. didn't have to go to a grocery store and you know if, if the store was even open, um, you know, stand around with other people coughing and hacking, and you can and go out. And I don't buy. I love chicken. I love chicken. I'll take some of that chicken that you got down there, but I never buy it because I shoot pheasants. So right. usually pheasants are are my chicken unless I'm at a restaurant or something and then they get weird if i bring a pheasant in there so <laughs> <laughs> um and unfortunately i didn't shoot a deer this year so my my red meat selection is a little light but i've got a lot of goose and i just bought a new grinder i bought the one and a half horsepower from meat and uh i just opened the package yesterday and i got a freezer full of goose and i'm going to make some goose burger that i started doing this year and it is oh, uh it's amazing. It's so good. And it's, and it's like, uh, yeah, I haven't bought hamburger at the store for a long time. So not that I was buying it much before anyway, but, um, it's really, I mix it with bacon and yeah. I, I guess on the amounts, the mixture, I'm not real scientific with it. I could probably do a better job, but, um, it's, it's been really good to make tacos, make chili, make uh, spaghetti, make a lot of different foods with That's it. So what I did with my goose is that I cooked it. I cooked half of it and made taco meat so that it's super easy for our busy nights to just mm -hmm. thaw it out and heat it up and roll it. But I don't deer hunt. I'm just fortunate enough that I adopted a kid years ago and he's a big deer hunter and he shoots at least one, if not two for me every year. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Can he shoot one for me? Yeah. I, I bet use, he will. <laughs> You're going to come all the way down here and get it. <laughs> all right. It's worth it. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I'm saving all of these questions that I personally wanted to know. 
just how how you got started and then the journey of it and how it's molded you and the things that you do because you're so committed to educating our community. So if you're just getting into the ins and the outs of the politics of the outdoors, this is a great channel for you to plug into um, not just only the topics that Brett brings up, but he has amazing guests on his show every week. That is sportingjournalradio.com. That's right. Yeah. That's I'll right. For a while. I should have let you plug yourself, but. Oh, that's all right. We've got, I mean, you can watch it on YouTube. You can, so Sporting Journal Radio has got a YouTube channel. We just added a North American Waterfowl podcast series to that same channel. So we started a waterfowl only podcast. I actually recorded those interviews in 2021. And then during COVID, when I was starting this whole video type, because we we're all at home. So we started doing interviews like that. So I interviewed, I was trying to find the craziest band story in the world. So I, I interviewed a bunch of people about bands and it, it led from some crazy band stories to banding research. I interviewed uh, guys out in California, a guy here in Minnesota that does some banding. And then I, I tracked down, it's not waterfowl, but it's the longest migration ever recorded from a bird. And I interviewed the bander for that. And that'll be the final episode that I'll put out for this season. Uh, so we've got, I think we got four North American waterfall podcast episodes out right now at the time of this oh, recording. So wait. those are there. And then we got fish on forever YouTube channel. And that's where you can see the raising tiny stuff, our layout boat duck hunts, our Kodiak film. We did all that there. It's all hunting and fishing stuff. And then uh prairie sportsman YouTube. That's the TV show we do up here. We're just about to kick off a new season of that show. And then uh, I do a fishing YouTube channel from Saskatchewan called Tazin Tazin TV at Tazin Lake Lodge. So all kinds. I always tell people just go to breadamundson.com. <laughs> and you can see links to everything. And that's just one site. You'll see everything all there. Well, thank you. Keep us posted. Tag me so that I can share this with everyone because you guys never sit still. It's busy, but yeah. it ain't a job. No, that's that's really awesome. Until next time, I am filing these questions. We're going to get into history. We're going to get into longevity. And I think the importance of that is sharing messages of how others can create the life that they dream of. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Bye. See you later. The dawn's finally breaking as I leave this sleepy town. The sun is slowly rising and the fog is on the ground.